Hello, this is Speaks Loud and Words, episode 14, and I'm your host, Dave Reed. Today, we were lucky enough to have Nicky Graham come and speak to us about his illustrious career, working with Bross, Anton Deck, David Bowie, the Nolans. He seemed to have worked with everybody in the industry. And as always, you can find us on facebook.com forward slash Warner Chapel UK and our Twitter at Warner underscore Chapel, Chapel spelled C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. Well, well, thank you very much, Nikki, for coming to speak to us today. You're very um, welcome. We're going to go right back to the very beginning. As far I'm as sure you can remember. I can remember that far back. We're going to just to ask you, what did you listen to in your childhood? Uh, strangely enough, uh, until I discovered uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, I used to listen to African music because I lived in Africa and the only music you could hear was either the guy walking down the street playing a guitar, singing, I don't know what the songs were, but in a kind of high-life style, or these um, Zulu dancers who did the most amazing things with gumboots on and stamping their feet and big rhythmical things, a bit like stomp, you know, stomp, but this is a traditional African sort of war dance, you know. Um, So I, I grew up with loads of rhythm, uh, and then I, I fell foul of Bill Haley and the Comets. Um, and then I said to my mother, I'm sorry, Mum, but that's it. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. And uh, never, never was. So. So, so how old were you when you came back from Africa? 16. 16. So you were there for quite some time then. Yeah. So you would have had a massive, that would have had a massive influence on your life. Do you find that those, that kind of rhythm has had any influence at all? Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. I get rhythm really, really, it's the first thing I go for. And also, um, you know, um, my daughter is five and she's incredibly rhythmic. In this, she comes up with these little uh, sort of rap ditty things uh, and they've all got a meter to them and they finish the bar and it's, you know, and I think, where did she get that from, you know? So it's, it's I'm sure it's genetic. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? That's uh, so rhythm, really important. And when I heard first heard uh, Rock Around the Clock, I just remember thinking, wow, this is, because I'd been classically trained. I used to sit at the piano and play mm. bits of Bach and stuff. And mm. and, uh, and I thought, well, that's what, what music is. Well how, well, how did you first hear that music? Was it through the radio? Oh, um, there was a movie called either called The Girl Can't Help It or um, I forget but it it featured some rock and roll artists Alan Freed was the DJ and and this movie featured some of these artists and, and uh, Jailhouse no, not Jailhouse rock, rock Around the Clock was in it and I, I saw it and then I went to my mother and I said mum you've got to come and see this film and I took her back the next day and said you have to see this film this is the greatest thing that's ever happened and I've not looked forward since (laughs) and how old are you when you first saw that film I think I was 12 and of course I started a band as you you do you know immediately and I, I just found somebody else who played the guitar and I bought I got a guitar and and I started listening to uh, going to a local record store and and hanging out on a Saturday morning and listening to you know whatever was going all American stuff in South Africa that's all we we ever got and then suddenly Cliff Richard appeared and and he did this album which was half of it uh, was 
kind of slushy ballads with Norrie Paramore playing the orchestra behind him. And the other half was him doing Move It and, and uh, Living Doll and, and mm. a, a bunch of those sort of early English Elvis copy type songs. Mm. But Elvis was great, uh, Bill Haley, all of kind of uh, pop records of the period. Uh, I remember being walking down the road and passing a shop and it was playing a Jerry Lee Lewis track. And I just uh, I stopped on the track on the pavement and I just went, what is that? And I stayed there for about half an hour and they kept playing it over and over and over. And of course I went in and bought it, I forget what it was. But uh, it was a you know a very important period when you when you suddenly discovered what life is all about. For for me, at any rate, music was that was it. Mm. You caught the bug, as they say. Caught the bug, yeah. Mm. And so you moved back around the age of sixteen. How did that move change how you listened to music? Was music more readily available? Was there things that you could go because you were sixteen? You're a little bit older. Could you find yourself going to gigs and things? Yes, uh, and I, the first thing I did when I got here was join a band. Uh, at school, and I used to hang out in the local record shop where you could go on a, you know, after school and just hang out and, and say to the shop owner, you know, what, what's what's the latest, what's coming in, and all that. That was the way you found out about music, just the same as the Beatles did in Liverpool. They'd go and hang out in Brian Epstein's record store and listen to all these records that coming in from the sailors coming from uh, America. That's where it all came from, American music. So it was a it was a wonderful period of, of discovery, of misspent youth, I think. <laughs> so you say you started a band at that age, and then how, how did that work? What did you, you used to hang out in the record store together, did you, and you wrote music together, or did you just do some covers? No, we didn't think about writing music at all. Um, we used to do covers, mm -hmm. uh, and it was only as I got older I started to think about writing. But prior to that, nobody wrote. They all just did, that was it. You did covers. Mm. And the ones who did the best covers were the ones who seemed to get on. And uh, when I was about 18, I think, um, I was at an art school in Kingston, which was a bit of a hotbed of musical talent. Um, the Yardbirds came from there, and I think Eric Clapton had a, some influence there. And, and uh, I was approached by some guys in a band who knew that I played keyboards as well as guitar and they were called The Innocents and they were a backing group for Mike Berry um, but he he was managed by Robert Stigwood and Stigwood had you know all the big acts of the time the Bee Gees and, and uh, Mike Sarn and various other groups and uh, The Outlaws and, and uh, The Innocents um, said they wanted me to play guitar with them. So um, I sort of said, oh, okay. Because the band I was in at school was just a, you know, a school thing, and when school finished, we all went our separate ways. And uh, the band were then discovered, if you like, by Bill Wyman, who was the Rolling Stones bass player. And, and he said, I want to manage you. I've, you know, I think you've got potential. So it was at that point we started writing, because he said... You know, now's your chance to uh, record, and uh, you need to write songs just the same as Mick and Keith do the writing in our band, The Rolling Bloody Stones. Uh, uh, you need to be writing. 
and I'll do I'll sort your publishing out and everything. So, um, so we started writing, and that's when that bug got me as well. Mm. How old so was we that were called the end, the end. <laughs> a great way to start a career. <laughs> How old were you then at that point? I was probably eighteen or nineteen. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And what was your writing style like? How d- how did you actually get around to writing with the other guys in the band? Was it just one person's responsibility, or was was it? We never collaborated. We, each one of us would go off and write, and then come back and play it to the others, and then we'd record them. So my songs were based around the keyboards. I had a Wurlitzer uh, electric piano, so I'd sit and play the Wurlitzer, and the other guys wrote on guitar and we just gradually started putting together material that came from each one of us but it kind of had a similar sound because the band played it so it became part of the end moving forward from there and i guess to a we are going back 200 years you do realize this (laughs) you obviously some kind of success because it progressed your career along somewhere um what was the next step for you after that we weren't necessarily hugely successful we we by default had a hit in spain <laughs> and so you of course go where the money is when you're in that position and we decamped off to spain and had lots of hits there and toured and did lots of big gigs you know bull rings and things like that uh, until the musicians union of spain threw us out because there wasn't a reciprocal arrangement with the english musicians union so in those days you had to have the same number of Spanish players were allowed to play in England, therefore you got a license to go and play in Spain. It was ridiculous. Uh, this is long before uh, the European Union, and Franco was still alive. And, and so we came back to England, and we changed our name and became Tucky Buzzard. Uh, and we changed, we morphed into a more of a heavy metal band than a than a pop act, but when we were in Spain, we were kind of soul band. We had uh, two saxes and two go-go dancers, and and we used to do um, James Brown songs and uh, and some of our songs as well. Um, and it was a good kind of party thing. But we, none of us were singers. That's the bottom line of it. Was none of us were singers, really. And so, in fact, I was the one who said we need a singer. So we brought in a singer, and he didn't want to do the sort of songs we were doing. He wanted to be a rock singer. And Led Zeppelin were kind of big at the time, so we sort of became a poor man's Led Zeppelin. But we did all right. We toured America two or three times, and we had Bill got us a deal with Capitol Records in Los Angeles, and we had three albums out. Um, And then... uh, uh, I decided I didn't think any of us were ever going to be successful. The band just didn't have all the right elements to it, uh, which I think is probably quite was probably astute of me at the time because you've got to be quite brutal about a band. They're either good or they're not, and they're, they've either got potential or you're kidding yourself really because you're all mates. And I kidded myself for a couple of years, and then I said, this band's never going to happen, because apart from anything, the lead singer was always pissed. And uh, the bass player could hardly stand up, he was so drunk. And so, you know, you go out on stage in front of 80,000 people, and you never know whether the, <laughs> whether the lead singer's going to be able to stand up through the, through the show. So you just sort of go. 
uh, and it coincided with meeting my uh, practice wife number one, uh, Diana Graham, who was a publisher, a music publisher as well. And she uh, she said to me, you've, you've got to get into writing and you've got to have your own publishing company. And so that's when I started taking music seriously then. Other, before that, it was just rock and roll and sleeping with as many women as you could get. Am I allowed to say that? You just did. <laughs> Not to worry. So it sounds like you've had a massive broad experience of musical genres just in the early days, like you said. And you look at your work probably more now than anything than you, in, in the recent past as well. You're seeing more of a pop kind of theme coming through. Where did that kind of start beginning to merge towards the pop going from the heavy metal? Well, I think I was always I was always a pop head in the sense that I always aimed for something that was commercial, and that generally tends to point you towards singles, pop songs. Mm. So when I was free of those restrictions of the other people in the band saying, "Oh no, that's too that's too poppy," you know, I was able to do things in a pop way. Mm. I got a job in A and R at Polydor. Um, and I didn't know anything about a and I didn't know what it was. I had to ask somebody when they offered me the job. <laughs> uh, and, of course, it all clicked because then I realised that this is where music, recorded music, starts. With an A&R man picking a producer, picking a song, picking an artist, putting them get together and making records. And with my experience of making records with Bill's band, um, I was able to start putting those experiences into play. And I um, uh, had access to Polydor's studio, and so after work, I'd just go in the studio and start making records. And, and one of the first records I made uh, became a hit, which surprised me. Uh, it was a, an artist called Christopher Rainbow. Uh, and we made this wonderful record. There were two, actually. Kenny Everett ab adopted Christopher Rainbow and said, oh, you know, I'm going to make this record a huge hit. And um, It still sounds good today. I listened to it a few, few years ago and I thought, actually, that's not a bad record for 1971 or two or whatever it was. Um, so I've, I've missed a whole chunk of my career, but I'm sure you're bored with that. So uh, I'll keep going on this tack if you want. Sure. It was just a... a a brief dalliance with David Bowie where I played piano for the Spiders from Mars. But um, How was that, touring with David Bowie? Uh, it was an extraordinary period. I mean, it, it was, um, I, was, I was actually working in the office uh, because practice wife number one had got me a job in the office and she was, uh, she was working with um, Tony DeFries who was managing David Bowie. And, and David said, oh... Uh, you play piano, don't you? Come along. So I <laughs> came like along and, and I played a bit. And he said, great, okay, well, we'll get you an outfit. And Next thing I know, I'm wearing plum, head to foot, of course, uh, with yellow boots up to here, <laughs> like out of, something out of Clockwork Orange. And I had long hair and I had blonde, no, silver hair on this side and gold on this side, very fetching. And uh, so I was, I was a spider. Uh, which was great. We went through the whole Ziggy Stardust era until I upset Angie Bowie, and then she got me fired. So, 
That's life. I'm glad, actually, because I probably would have ended up, you know, on a drug heap somewhere. But uh, so it was great fun, great experience. Um, where was I? Where did I get to? <laughs> oh, yeah. After I'd had this hit, then other record companies started saying, hey, come and work for us. Yeah. We'll increase your salary from 1,700 to 2,000 pounds a year. And I went, that sounds good to me. Uh, and I became a staff producer at CBS, which is now is Epic and Columbia and Sony. Uh, and I was given the keys to the candy store, really, just you know, go and make records and and A and R things and produce things and do what you Sounds like. Sounds like you got the best of both worlds. You're doing your A and R and you're writing at the same time. Yeah. It's pretty well, that was playing a political game was quite difficult because, uh, for example, I signed uh, the Nolans because I thought they had huge potential as a, as a commercial entity, you know, Irish sisters all singing and pretty and stuff. And they had done an album on Warners, uh, which was called 20 Giant Hits. And it was just a bunch of covers. And as soon as I saw them on TV, I thought, I've got it, I know exactly what to do with these girls. So I signed them. And then it was a case of picking a producer and a songwriter to work with them but at the same time being aware of where they ought to be going musically, which I thought I would take, take them on that journey. Um, so I gradually started introducing my songs into the framework and, and people started saying, well, actually your songs and your productions are better than the ones that we've, we've been doing up to now. And that, that's how that area progressed. So I was working at, at uh, Columbia uh, and writing and producing and, and uh, there came a point where I realized that if I was ever going to get beyond being the staff producer, which meant when you're the staff producer, you get to produce something that nobody else wants to do. So I'd be doing a musical, you know, the cast recording of a musical, or I'd be doing, um, Barbara Dixon and uh, you know just stuff that wasn't me but I did it because there wasn't anyone else to do it you know so um, I quit after 10 years I quit but the Nolans had done incredibly well and, and I, uh, I, had, I had a deal where I got a royalty and it transpired that I was earning more money than the MD of the company because we were selling so many records that they said to me well, in future, you won't get a royalty. You'll just get a pay rise. Okay. So I went, oh, terrific. So that, the writing was on the wall at that point. So I, I left. And within a year, I discovered Bros. And done some demos with them and brought them back into the same company and said, right, here's your act. I'm producing it. I'm writing the songs. Take it or leave it. That was basically it. They couldn't throw me out. And I, of course, I got a royalty, and, and uh, that became very successful. Mm. Mm. And that kind of started a, a proper career as a singer-songwriter. Mm. Not a singer-songwriter, a songwriter-producer. Mm. Mm. And it rolled on from there. Tell us a bit about your songwriting process. How do you begin writing a song? Well, I never write a song on spec in, in that sense. I don't ever go oh, here's a great idea, and then record it and then say, now who am I going to aim this at? I always start with an artist and 
a style, so I know what they've been doing or what I think they could be doing, and then I create um, a groove. I always start with the drums. I get a kind of groove going, you know, that's in the pocket. Uh, and then I look for a title, and I've got a list of titles, which I pick up, you know, on the tube or, you know, in it. just, oh, that's, oh, write that down. Yeah. And then you look down the list of titles and you think, right, that's sort of appropriate. Uh, and then when you see the title and you speak it or sing it, it has a meter to it. And therefore that kind of governs where the song goes from there. Also, of course, the lyric then springs from that point. But you've already, you know, I love green bananas. It's got a sort of rhythm to it. Not the way I did it there, but, and, and that sort of dictates the meter of how the rest of the song goes. And then once you've got the chorus and it sounds like a hit, then you fill in the gaps with, you do a verse that complements and sets up the chorus and you do a middle eight because you need a little relief from it. And then you, you know, in the old days you'd stick in a key change so you don't do those anymore. It's very old fashioned. It, it's a fairly, painting by numbers sort of process but it always seems to work but it has done for you hasn't it well yeah. it has done for me yeah. touch wood. yeah so i'm not i'm not uh, not complaining but there are probably you know there are other ways of of writing songs but that seems to work for me yeah we we, we i mean we've had so many different methods whilst we've been doing this podcast let me know. yeah yeah let you know all the maybe secrets. i've got it wrong no i think everybody has their own unique method and that one is slightly unique in the way that you just get the beat going, you look at your titles, and then you you choose from those. I think it's it sounds like it's worked for you. And, and I mean, when I did it. "When Will I Be Famous," mm-hmm. I had the title "When Will I Be Famous," but in my head I had a different meter, so I had to stick in two extra syllables. So I went, "When will I will I be famous?" Because it seemed to work. It didn't work with "When will I be famous?" So I just cheated a bit and stuck sure. in an extra you know two two words and thing or two. Yeah. it did really well it yes really did did reasonably well yeah. over the years so um we wanted to speak to you about uh, let's get ready to rumble a little bit how did that song come about um obviously you picked up anton deck well i was producing a band called let loose at the time uh and we had we had a massive hit with a song called crazy for you um, and they were on Phonogram. And the A&R guy from Phonogram, Alan Pell, had been approached by the BBC, who said they've got this programme, Bike a Groove, and he had two kids in it who'd been... A section of the script had been written as if they had created their own song at Biker Grove, and they were going to perform this song in a club in Newcastle. They didn't have a song. So the A&R man from Phonogram from, from Let Loose said, oh, I know Let Loose have got this song, which would probably work. Why, you know, Nicky, why don't you, you go up to Newcastle and record the boys doing it? Now, we know they can't sing, so this song had a rap in it. So just get them to rap it and then get somebody else to, to sing the chorus. So I bowled up to Newcastle with this song and I met the boys in the morning and... Uh, uh, we went off to a really dodgy recording studio somewhere up in 
very poor part of Newcastle. And uh, I taught them the rap in this song. And, and uh, then I came back to London and I put, put all the overdubs on it and some singing on it, presented it to Phonogram, and they said, Ugh, it's horrible. I said, we can't have people rapping with a Geordie accent. That's terrible. So I said, well, I think it sounds reasonably good. I think there's a market for these two kids. They're really funny and they're, you know, very affable kids. And uh, they were 16 years old, I think, at the time. And uh, I said, well, if you don't want it, can I sell it to somebody else? And he said, yeah, if you can get somebody else to put it out, you know, you can well, give us two and a half grand and you can have it. So I went to, I had friends at Telstar and I went to them and I said, Biker Grove are airing a, an episode that contains this song being performed by these two kids uh, in about six weeks' time. Do you want to give it a punt? And they said, yeah, we'll put it out. So they got it in the shops, and the show was broadcast. And all these kids all over England started going into Woolies saying, um, you've got that record by uh, PJ and Duncan, you know. So there was a market. So immediately Telstar said, right, go away and write some more. Uh, so I, I had a, my writing team, which includes my now wife, practice wife number three, I think it is. We sat down and we wrote an album. And it, we knew exactly who we were writing for, what kind of market it was. You know, was, we knew even what kind of clothes they ought to wear. The whole thing just came out of of a vision of, of how you could turn two actors into pop stars. And of course they did it beautifully because they were just acting. They just knew what you had to do as a pop star. So you would plug yourself in and you'd become a pop star and then you'd go off to the pub and become, you know, a Geordie lad drinking Newcastle Brown. And um, we had then a succession of hits, which included uh, Rumble was the third hit, I think, or the second one, I can't remember. first one was Tonight I'm Free, which was the, uh, the Let Loose song. Then I wrote uh, Why Me uh, with my team, and we did um, If I Give You My Number, and then Let's Get Ready to Rumble. I'm, I'm out, got the sequence wrong, and then uh, Eternal Love, which was a sort of um, a groovy ballad with a big drum beat on it and uh, that was a massive hit all over Southeast Asia uh, and then our Radio Rocks and, and uh, that was it, there were six hits on the, that album, did really well. So Rumble was, was wonderful and of course they didn't have to sing anything, that was the great thing is they just rapped, you know, all the songs are rapped or spoken. Um, if I give you my number will you call was really just a spoken chorus. And um, my wife, Denny, uh, sang all the backing vocals as she did, does on, on Rumble. And lo and behold, it becomes a hit 19 years later, another hit. Yeah. So, brilliant. Were you surprised by that? Completely. Uh, it was a real eye-opener because all I thought about was when when ITV phoned me and said, have you got a backing track? And I hunted for this backing track, couldn't find it. But um, I wasn't even sure if they were going to do it. So I'm sitting in front of the telly at home and uh, 
and they played this game with Blue and Atomic Kitten and Five. And uh, they said, oh, we're not going to, we said we'd never do it again. We never, uh, the next thing I know, they burst out on the stage and I went, oh, great. You know, a little bit of PRS, that'll be fun. You know, it was really fun performance. Didn't think anything more of it until Sunday afternoon. Somebody texted me and said, you're number three in the download charts. I went, what? You're joking. By Monday, it was two or one. I can't remember the sequence of it. But, and then, of course, it dawned on me that when you have product that's instantly available, you don't have to have the normal campaign that is based on the traditional way of, of selling a single, because there's no real singles market anymore. So you didn't have to press any product. You didn't have to do a deal with Woolies, or not the Woolies is there anymore, but with, uh, you know, I was going to say HMV, and that's not there either. But, but you, didn't, you didn't have to do a deal with Tesco's or Sainsbury's, or, uh, because apart from anything, there's no singles market. They don't rack singles anymore. So before that, you had to have a campaign that involved pressing and distribution, a plugger, a regional plugger, a press person to wind up the story. You know, you had to have some TVs in line, you had to have breakfast TV, and you had to try and get them on whatever was the current pop program. So it was none of that. It just happened to be available on a Greatest Hits album in on iTunes. So people just clicked on it and bang, it's got, it's there. And I thought, wow, the immediacy of it is just unbelievable. Mm. So, so quick, you know, to go from nowhere to number one, mm. just based on one TV program, which mm. had, okay, nine million viewers, but still I think it's, brilliant. it's, it's a song <coughs> that probably most households in the UK know, and that phrase, ready to rumble, oh, let's get ready to rumble, is just, so everybody knows that and so and everybody loves Anton Deck as well in this country or most people do and so it's just a great recipe for a very well it, it, success. in a way um, why it wasn't a big hit the first time around was because people were buying the album so it got to number nine but the album was at number one so people preferred to buy the album than buy the single whereas this time around it was just we loved that song and it and it we knew over the years that it was a sort of students' union type song. Most students would uh, have, in that era, would have had a had a great deal of fun in the students' union bar, you know, dancing to the rumble. And uh, and they've grown up now, and they've got probably got kids and everything. My daughter thinks it's wonderful. So, you know, all power to iTunes. Thank that's mm. what I say. So writing for Bross and writing for Anton Deck, how did, how did that differ? Did, did things differ in your process? No, n not in the process at all and nor in the execution of it. Um, uh, uh, Anton Deck never questioned anything. I'd just play him a, a demo and they go, okay, great, okay. And Bross <laughs> were the same, you know, play him a bunch of songs. Okay, lovely. There was no, nothing of this, oh, well, uh, you know add a word, take a third, or, you know. Um, uh, there was a touch of it with Bross. I remember Matt said, uh, uh, when we did Drop the Boy, I don't know if you know that song well enough, but there's, it goes, drop the boy, drop the boy. Whoa! There's a sort of ad-lib that he does. 
And he said, I want a piece of the song because he did the ad lib. Uh, I said, no, I'm sorry. No, you know. So today, are you still writing songs? Yeah, song? not so much. Uh -huh. Not so much now. Do you, do, you, do you find yourself doing anything different this time around or nowadays? No, I, still, I say not so much. I've just done two albums with, with Mr. Tumble, who is uh, Justin Fletcher, who's um, yeah. kids' entertainer on yeah. CBeebies. How, how, how does that work different? How, how is it different to the other stuff? Well, not different at all. Just <laughs> uh, I, First of all, with him, I... I had a list of children's favourite songs, which I updated stylistically, but I knew that nobody would play those tracks on Radio One or Capital uh, because they are kids' songs. You know, who who wants to hear a version of uh, Heads, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes, even done in a very contemporary way? So I wrote with my team again. I wrote um, Key Track, which became the title track of the album on the first album it's called Hands Up and the album was called Hands Up and it was very playable as it happens nobody played it but people bought the album so um, that worked very well but it's still on stage it sounds fantastic and three weeks ago I saw Justin at the Wembley Arena um, and the whole ensemble of cast including all the BBC characters and everything burst out on the stage and did hands up with the whole dance routine and the stuff going on and it just sounded fantastic because it's a very contemporary record you should have yeah. a listen to it hands up hands up yeah um so the process never changed at all mm. so that you know you've got to, you know who your artist is you know who you've got to appeal to so the process remains the same mm. and did you do you find you enjoy that work as much as you enjoyed the other work is it just a just a different type of challenge Oh, I, I love creating, so you know it, it, it's uh, you know it's not exactly um, credible to to do an album with a children's entertainer, but it, you know it pays the rent, and uh, I'm doing other stuff as well now. But I'm branching out into musical theatre, so uh, that's probably more befitting of a of a 24 year old, which I am now. Um, and it seems right that I should be doing musical theatre rather than trying to compete mm. with, uh, you know, Higgins and all that lot. But my team back at my studio are really fantastic. So um, I tend to write, if I'm writing, like, with Hands Up, for example, I wrote the, the basic idea and a, and a groove and gave it to them, and they stuck all the... You know, side chaining and all the you know all the current sort of things on there to make it sound like a contemporary record. Mm. So I let them do all that stuff, and mm. I, I get on with being an impresario, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and and so you now finding yourself going to musical theatre. Um, what is what are you doing differently in that? Well, I'm not writing because the the project I'm on at the moment is a, a, a musical about the life of Mark Bolan. 20th Century so, Boys. 20th right? Century Boys. Yeah. So, uh, of course, Mark wrote all his own songs. So I don't get involved in any of the songwriting, but I organise. So I'm in, I'm, as a producer, I, you, know, I'll, you know, with my co-production partners, we choose the director and the script writer. And, the, uh, and I just, you know, I'm sort of overseeing the whole thing and have to pay for it as well, which is 
what producers have to do. So, so I don't get involved in any of the creative on that level, but at the same time I have an overview of is the script right? Is there enough comedy? Is it as is the etern- is there an eternal triangle in it? You know, are people going to weep? Are they going to come out the theatre going la 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 la, which is what they do? Um, hot love, and so it's just another version of of making records. It's yeah. just different on a different scale. Yeah. Oh, very good. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're very welcome. Talking to Nicky is quite an inspiring thing because I'm quite a young person myself. So just talking about his career that just seems to span the most amazing artists and time in the UK music industry and kind of gets me going a little bit. Thinks, what do I want to achieve when I'm his age? I love how simple his songwriting process is as well. Just very easy, just rhythm, a great concept for a title of a song, and then he just builds a verse that complements the chorus. It's just obviously works really well, writing for Bross and even Adam Egg. Very cool guy. Until next time.